After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, it's Raghu Marcus. I'm back with Mind Rolling and a, a lovely new guest, Deborah Eden Tull. And uh, Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I feel really uh, blessed to be here today and excited to see what unfolds in our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about uh, your book that came out a little bit relational mindfulness so we're gonna get into that somewhat mm -hmm. uh but um for those of you who don't know and we will have sh in our show notes all of the kind of links to the book and website and so on but uh deborah's uh, founder of mindful living revolution a zen meditation and mindfulness teacher and uh, spent seven years as a buddhist monk at yeah. a silent zen no less monastery that, that we want to hear about as well. But in terms of everything that you represent and that you do and that you teach, one thing caught my eye in this little bio says that you assist people in releasing the myth of separation and reclaiming the authority of the heart. So like we are so aligned and, whatever we're doing with uh, our love server ramdas's love server member foundation mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we're right in tune with you yeah yes um can we start by you I, I like to ask everybody i first meet how did they uh what are the things that ignited the transformation mm -hmm. from the idea that oh, Jesus, what is this? I'm yeah, I'm separate. There's my parents, my friends. It all seems like strange. And then maybe there's a moment when that uh, it it dawns that wow, there is a something else and something mm -hmm. worth well worth pursuing aside from what society dictates. So when was that, and how did that happen for you? Yes, um, I would say that for me uh, i feel like in a sense and maybe many people can relate to this there was always a deeper knowing uh, even as a young child maybe even especially as a young child for many people before we've been more deeply conditioned yeah and um my family brought me up with an extreme uh, love affair of the natural world and i'm grateful for that and i also come from a family of activists and so my 
mom was very engaged in L.A. Skid Row. And so first I would just say the juxtaposition of the life I saw peers and people living around me, uh, the juxtaposition of the, the absolute beauty and wholeness I experienced in nature, and then seeing regularly, because I spent quite a bit of time there, Skid Row and the discompassionate economy and structure of our society always had me confused, <laughs> really, really confused. And that um, pointed already to an example of uh, systemic separation, how the myth of separation manifests systemically in our world. But within myself, I would say the main shift occurred because uh, when I was 11 years old, my father, who really in a way was my first spiritual teacher, he had a contemplative Christian practice and he was just a present, deep listener. And uh, he found out one day out of the blue that How he did had you get that combo. winning combo? Jeez. I know, I know. It's, it's called extreme, extreme luck. Um, extreme so I, grace. I'm going to call it grace. Okay, that you. ain't luck and what you've done yeah. in past lives to get that, to get yeah. there. And who you chose when you were making a transition, I am sure has to do with yeah. the work you've been doing for a long time. But I don't hear that kind of a story very often let me tell you yeah yeah I like that yeah and one day when uh, i was about 11 years old just out of the blue he found out he had he had a month left to live oh. and so that was such a wild piece of news sort of like the first hit by the avalanche of impermanence that brings so many of us to the path yeah, yeah. and it was really time with him uh, that i spent when he was dying i was 11 years old i was very much sort of forming my questions about being a human being. And um, he gave really uh, helpful voice to the fact that what had mattered most in his life was, you know, not what he had attained or um, the goals he didn't get to reach in his career or like that. But it was really the quality of his relationships, you know, with himself, with spirit, with his loved ones. And he, he died in grace because of that. And so getting to see that at a young age, it truly informed my whole path. Yeah. 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 And did you, how did you set out, uh, how did Zen find you, shall we say? Good question. How did Zen find me? Um, well, there was a period as a young person after losing a loved one that was really, really difficult living in a society where appearances are valued over the integrity of one's internal world. So I really learned how to put on a fake smile and hide my grief and this kind of painful existence. And so I knew that I was, I was looking for kind of the modeling of how to be with extreme pain, both within myself and for our world. Because of course, as a lover of nature, a lover of humans. Even at a young age, I could see how much trouble we were in. Yeah. And so um, at the end of high school, I just was really lucky to set out on a path to find alternatives for, to a more sustainable way of living in our world uh, than I had seen modeled in LA, to find uh, teachers of possibility. And so I began both sitting meditation, Zen, and learning how to grow my own food, organic gardening, and then farming 
at the same time. And it was this beautiful integration that kind of showed me, wow, it's very true. Like how we treat ourselves and how we treat our world is the same. And one's personal practice has a really, um, an impact that is transpersonal, interpersonal, societal, global. It kind of pointed to the big picture from the, the start of my practice. But truly Zen came, I think, first through a, a book. And of course, I had heard about Zen from my dad. And um, it very quickly changed my life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which book? The first uh, book was called That What You Were Seeking Is Causing You to Seek um, by a woman who was my teacher many years, Sherry Huber. And she didn't even sign books back then. So it took me a while to find her. And Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi is mm. the next book that came into my hands. And it's a, a classic that I recommend to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. There's a great quote in your book, by the way, by uh, Shunryu Suzuki. Which habit is he? Is he, is he Leonard Cohen's? Was he Leonard This Cohen's? is Soto Zen. Soto Zen. Uh -huh. Yeah. So he said, life is like stepping onto a boat, which is about to sail out to sea and sink. <laughs> I love that. I read it to some and they go, okay, that's really positive. Thank you. But it's, yeah. uh, let's get real about the truth of that. It is. Yeah, let's get real. And if we are seeing that aspect of life and of being human, then we can really do the work of surrendering and cultivating deep joy and deep connection. And right. Yeah. 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 Well, and you say this is cool. Um, imagine if as young people, our parents had sat us down and said to us some version of this. Welcome to this incredible and sobering journey called life. In this lifetime, you're going to experience more love and beauty that you could, than you could possibly imagine. And you'll also experience more pain and suffering than you think you can bear. Given this reality, let's prepare you with as much awareness, wisdom, courage, resilience, and self-compassion as you are going to need for this journey. You will experience all of it. And so let us prepare you for the ability to see clearly and listen deeply as you navigate the journey called life. You have what it takes to meet whatever life brings you. Your unique contribution matters and you are not alone. Yes. Yeah. How, how do we make that uh, curriculum for uh, new parents to repeat uh, on a daily basis? Can you tell yeah, me? Yeah, I'm with you. We, we all need it. Um, you know, for me, this particular book, Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourself, each other, our planet, it really came from asking that kind of question. When I transitioned from the silent monastery where I had been living for seven years into the city of L.A., of all places, a very loud, busy, uh, I can't imagine. <laughs> dynamic field. I was really inspired both within myself of just how to carry the, the sanity and the simplicity and the fierce compassion that the monastery had instilled in me, but also how to help people. Like the first students I began teaching meditation there, it was clear they were here to learn from me, not just how to meditate, but how to live their life 
in meditation, meaning how to live their life and how to use the dynamic field of relationship to wake up, right? Rather than hang out and sleep with one another. <laughs> and so the, the tools are really simple. I mean, um, really simple and accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about them as we go along here. Mm -hmm. um, this is an interesting thing that you have a little bit of a chapter about why uh, our sensitivity is our strength as a species. Yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah. What are you talking about here? This is such an important one. And, and you're just asking such uh, rich questions. So thank you for that quality of presence and inquiry that you have. Well, it's, it's I need to know. Kind <laughs> of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really beautiful expression of relational intelligence, that mm. kind of, you know, knowing what kinds of questions um, we can go deep in together. So I would say that um, one of my long-term teachers and inspirations is Joanna Macy. Mm. I don't know how many of the listeners know Joanna, but if you know her, you love her. And she's well, in we, her 90s uh, now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, we, uh, I reference her uh, fairly regularly. And I know of her through Ramdas because she did a thing with Ramdas many years ago that is so fantastic. Uh, it's just, uh, just a penetrating conversation um, mm. having to do with suffering and the transformation of that. Yeah, so we love Beautiful. Joanna. Yeah, yeah. So she really helped inspire me to fully bridge Zen practice, you know, sometimes people think of meditation as just something we're doing within ourselves uh, or for ourselves with a sense of how to be of most generous service in our world today. And we know this is an age of so much disruption. So the first thing I'll say is really understanding that our sensitivity, the more we develop uh, a subtle, attuned awareness, the more we live in the state of deep listening. Uh, learning to listen to life as it unfolds moment by moment, which meditation teaches us, uh, engage meditation, meaning using our life as our practice. Uh, that sensitivity deeply, deeply serves us. We, I personally came to understand that a part of me, my sensitivity, which I had been taught to judge um, in an age of um, patriarchy to be thought of as too uh, weak, actually became known to me as one of my greatest strengths, that that is the place of attunement, that is the place of getting attuned to one another, getting to attune to the earth. It's also the place of getting to be part of the natural feedback system of this planet. When we, through our sensitivity, feel our pain for a forest being clear-cut or an entire um, uh peoples being judged and discriminated against because of the color of their skin and we really let ourselves receive that information through the sensitivity of our hearts that informs us deeply that informs us if we're open to it of exactly how we're going to show up in life how much presence and um, compassion and integrity we're going to bring so that's one of the ways in which our strength is our sensitivity mm. yeah 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 and of course, in our culture in general, that is mostly taken as a sign of weakness. Yes. Sensitivity. Isn't that something? It's, it's like, phenomenal. 
It's so backwards. And then what that creates is a culture where, where people think they need to um, show up defended, guarded, hiding things, um, not showing their weakness, not asking for help when they really need it, um, feeling embarrassment or humiliation when they fall down, you know, instead of like, we're all sensitive beings and actually what helps to um, firm us as a species to make us uh, strong and more conscious is really, really honoring our individual sensitivity and one another's and simply be learning to become, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, more expressive about our vulnerability, transparency, uh, letting ourselves be seen as we are. Yeah, that's really a, a nice sign of freedom. Mm, very yeah. scary. Very scary, scary at first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I taught a it's hard for people. Yeah. It is, it is. I taught a day-long retreat the other day, and in some of the relational practices, you know, we're listening deeply to one another and also doing gazing, just really taking in one another through the eyes without needing to do anything or um, without turning away. And people can be terrified of that because of what you're pointing to. It's just cultural conditioning mm. that we are separate yeah. when we're not. Yeah. Um, but it's something else that struck me here. Well, there's so many different things, uh, Eden. It's really uh, a wonderful manual here with a lot of help. I mean, a lot of my mission here with this mind rolling podcast is to see if we can't get from all of the traditions from Zen to Bhakti to Tibetan Buddhism, all of them, get it down to a place where it has real practical application to our day-to-day -day lives. It's not something out there, some esoteric teaching and so on. So yes. there's a lot of really practical stuff uh, in this mm -hmm. book. Uh, and one of these things is um, psychic numbing and turning toward rather than away. Now, my familiarity with something like this is, uh, is the Tibetan practice of Tonglen. Mm -hmm. And then also... Um, uh, there's a great Lama, Lama Tsultrim, uh, Alioni. I'm not sure if you know who she is. Yes, yeah. yeah. And she wrote a book, um, Feeding the Demons. And that's all about turning towards than, than away. But uh, let me, yeah, give me some example, maybe a story about how that really gets, uh, you know, what we do gets uh, edified by the fact that we can turn it takes a little bit of courage, but we can turn to face rather than turn back. Yeah, this is such a, a big and important topic. Um, and I would start by saying that, affirming that there is an incredible amount of psychic numbing going on. Uh, so much mm. to see in our world, which feels like too much, too much to feel with, too much to take in just in one's personal human life, uh, so much goes on that uh, is painful and difficult. And so there's a whole lot of numbing out. And this is a day and age where, as you know, we have more choices of how to numb out than I think humans have ever had before in history. So we could numb out in a million different ways now from the iPhone or another version of the screen to food or alcohol or um, whatever it is. But it's really, really important to acknowledge that we each have a conscious choice in every moment to turn towards and be with our experience, stay present with it, 
Learn how to stay present with ourselves through the light and dark, the expansion and contraction in a way that what it develops is a sense of a steadfast, compassionate presence in our life. You know, when we're going through the easy stuff, the blissful moments, when we're going through um, the really difficult times, that there's a sense of a steadfast, grounded, compassionate presence at our side. And the more we learn to turn towards rather than away um, from our pain, our shadows, uh, or if we're in conversation with someone else and they have something difficult coming up, not trying to fix or solve their situation, but being with their pain then the organic and long-term healing has space to arise. Uh, the healing arises from our willingness to turn towards, uh, not to numb out. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, since you asked for an example of just one retreat that I led where a man came, a wonderful being who was in his early 80s, and he... Um, said something to the extent of like he didn't really think he thought he was there to enjoy his meditation but he didn't really imagine that there was a a big healing that he needed in his life then and as we did some work um he began to get in touch with memories from age five of a trauma that had happened that was so intense mm. that he realized he had blocked off his entire life and he had kind of led his whole life trying to run from that trauma so even in his early 80s, he was really aware of how much he had numbed out. I invited him and I invite everyone on retreat at times to sit down and to write a love letter to himself. And it sounds like a simple exercise, but it can be quite profound. And he could not do it or would not do it at first. And when he finally did, in the writing of this letter, he turned toward pain that he had blocked off part of us that he of him that he had judged as weak and too much to be with and it was like not only did the floodgates open but the healing of a lifetime occurred for him you know and i i do see that again and again and again as i'm sure you do when we're willing to simply turn towards and be with it's so simple but it's counterintuitive and honestly revolutionary in today's world when people are taught not to know and honor the fierce strength of their heart and their capacity to be with uh, what is difficult, but they're taught, hey, here's another way to numb out, or they're taught there must be something wrong with you if you're depressed, so let's give you some pills to pop. And it's, it's not helpful. It's not helpful when we're looking at the big picture and the resources of the heart that we all need to access as a collective now. You with me? Yeah. Yeah. There's an yeah. endless supply of numbing bombs. Ah. B A L M S. Yes. Yeah. More and more platforms, digital platforms are created to uh to draw us in like a carnival barker, right? Yes. PT Barnum, come on in. Boy. <laughs> Get away yeah. from your shit right now. Yes. And, you know, I love that you brought this up because even meditation or spiritual practice can be approached, right? Same. Through the lens of spiritual bypassing. This is some way I'm going to numb out or find this endless bliss that will take me away from darkness because we have such a duality of light and dark and we don't realize darkness, I believe, is, is really our greatest teacher. Yeah. yeah. So. 
Yeah. Well, we were hand. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how much you know about our tradition. From Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas, my guru, Krishnadas. Um, but we were led to understand it very early on that uh, suffering is, if if you have uh, reoriented your perspective, and you then can see that suffering is a process by which we are transformed. And so it's how do we make friends with that suffering? Not easy. Yes. And, you know, not easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but, uh, wait, there's one thing. I want to talk about meditation a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but I just noticed the, this uh, quote that you put in from Joanna. This is a dark time. Because this quote is so right on for like mm -hmm. this second, next second, you know, many <laughs> yes. seconds in the last years and hopefully maybe not too far down the line. We shall see. This is a dark time filled with suffering and uncertainty. Like living cells in a larger body, it is natural that we feel the trauma of our world. So don't be afraid of the anguish you feel or the anger or fear because these responses arise from the depth of your caring and the truth of your interconnectedness with all beings. That's a beautiful, beautiful quote from her. Yes. Um, but when she says, don't be afraid, um, that, that's a, a line that we have to sort of dissect. And in, in, in you were talking about it just now. Meditation can be uh, another way to buffer away the pain the suffering the anguish the unknown mm -hmm. inside us the unremembered traumas and all of it uh but without some kind of practice be it meditation chanting body movement breath whatever it means there's i mean that's the good thing about the web right or the digital age you can yeah. access whatever you want, whatever comes up inside you that goes, wow, this is something that I can relate to. Let me find out more about it. So mm. there's mm. It's more of the 100,000 beautiful visions and the 100,000 horrible mm. things that mm. we are faced with day to day. Um, so tell me about you and your experience. I mean, Zen meditation is... Um, the most uncompromising form of meditation because it's nothing <laughs> to hold on to. zero, you know. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just tell me a little bit about your experience and what happened to you to form some kind of foundation where you, when she says, so don't be afraid, you actually could go there based on yeah. some, the depth of experience through awareness and spaciousness. Yeah, yeah thank you for that question. And I will say that, um, you know, today I am an incredibly courageous being. I know myself as a truly courageous woman. And it is only so because I came into this lifetime with so much fear. So I've had so many fears to learn to turn towards and meet with presence and meet with compassion and stay with. And that has really cultivated uh, a bone deep courage, uh, which is... Hmm. Lovely. And what I would say is, for one thing, I, I truly love the simplicity of uh, 
of Zen. For me, I was very drawn to the simplicity in a world that so glamorizes um, things that are complicated and complex and busy. And I love the invitation to develop a compassionate self-discipline, as so many of the spiritual paths you've named um, invite as well. That's a kind of discipline that teaches us to go beyond the kind of um, popular in our culture discipline of like very masculine force, push yourself even when it's not kind, toughen up, right? Or you go to the opposite extreme of just like being lazy and not showing up at all. Compassionate self-discipline really invites this beautiful middle way between like learn to show up uh, every day. Uh, learn to show up fully, you know, as if it's for your last and in absolute kindness. Uh, there's an absolute gentleness. So for me, that balance really helped me to, to learn to work with fear. And as the more that I practice sitting meditation and just access this spaciousness, this uh, emptiness, this uh, darkness, at the beginning, and this I think is true for many people, it can feel a bit terrifying, like the relaxing at first feels good, and then you realize you um, can just drop into absolute stillness, you can drop into uh, what we talk of as the void, as emptiness, as spaciousness, boundless awareness, and that can actually be terrifying to people. Not, It's not really terrifying to us, it's terrifying to our ego, right? Mm-hmm. But the more I spent time just getting, um, befriending spaciousness, it it felt like such a coming home for me. And the way I talk about spaciousness and as a synonym, stillness or darkness, right? We think of darkness as the mystery from which everything arises and everything will return. But dropping into that place, that for me, was the place of freedom from my judging mind. And that for me was the place of every single part of me has, has a home here. <laughs> every single part of me is welcome here. This field of spaciousness, it's not judging. It's not a space in which I need to do anything or get anywhere. It's a place in which I'm given an experience of my absolute already here wholeness (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and that was just such a deep relief so having the seat um, in meditation the the chance to hang out in that wholeness and keep coming back to that wholeness then when shadows would arise to work with or fears would arise to face i had what i needed because i could access and remember that wholeness does that make sense yeah so let's yeah. say you're sitting yeah maybe yeah. in your earlier days let's mm-hmm. probably focus mm-hmm. more there yeah and suddenly a memory a thought fear mm-hmm. arises mm-hmm. and then you feel it in your body once that thought happens you know yep. it's setting off all of these emotional alarms what did you do especially in the earlier days yes yeah yeah so um that's a great and and practical invitation for everyone just to even as people are listening check in with your body right now just take a minute to 
feel connected to gravity and connect with your breath. And just let everyone take in a few conscious breaths and simply arrive here a little more fully. And so as, let's say, a difficult emotion arises um, or an uncomfortable sensation or an element of fear, it's really the invitation, and we'll go back to this phrase again, of turning towards, just gently, rather than turning away from it, saying, I don't like this, I need to get away from this, I need to change this, just staying with the inflow and outflow of the breath while you gently allow this experience to be here. And the teaching really is to meet everything in our human experience with gentle curiosity and kindness. So whether we find ourselves in, uh, we might say the light room, that experience which is really easy, or a really dark room, a place where we feel a lot of fear coming up. We can simply invite a gentle investigation, turning towards and simply noticing everything that we can, as subtly as we can, about that experience. What does it feel like in my body as this emotion, energy and motion moves through? We might notice what is the self-talk when I find myself in this place of fear. We might notice more subtly what physical sensations are here. And to be honest, the next step, which is really helpful, is to see if we can get a sense of, and this is just language I find incredibly useful, but who, who is this part of me? Can I gently take a step back by just noting, oh, the fearful one is here, okay? Or the angry one. And that language um, has always been incredibly useful to me because in any moment we can either be caught in the fear or the anger, right? Or step back and be with the fear or anger. So it's really helpful to just learn how to be with and welcome every single part of us that could possibly arise. And really from that, like every single part of humanity, because we're not separate. Yeah. So does that give you a kind of a little sense of how I would navigate mm -hmm. it in my practice? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Very much what I share with people as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so many of our practices are uh, shared paths. Of oh, yeah. Separation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's like the, the first second I was with Neem Karoli Baba. I'm assuming you know who he is, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was just, he just did this. There is only one. Mm, 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 mm. And he just, that over and over. It's all one. Sub-ek in Hindi. Yeah. So mm. absolutely. Yeah. All of this ties together at some level and it all goes to the same peak on that mountain so yeah yes now wait uh, but you're young and you're getting into you know you're doing this really i mean long meditation practice on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. for years right mm -hmm. and then at the very beginning okay it nothing probably happened and you started getting bored did you get bored 
at one point? <laughs> Did you ever get bored? That's a great question. Um, you know, boredom is something that it's a hindrance that a number of people, many people do have to deal with. It's not been one I've really had to meet. Um, I'm, I'm good at wonder. Uh, I'm good at fascination. So um, boredom hasn't been so much one that I've had to, to work with. But I will tell you this. There's kind of a, a coming down that happens from an addiction to drama. And I will say that I, I had some addiction to drama without <laughs> knowing it. It was very subconscious. But let's acknowledge that any of us who have a, our primary relationship as with the conditioned mind, right? The separate self, the mind of separation, the stories and narrative that's been conditioned. Yeah. Any of us who have that as a primary relationship, and many people do before they come to a practice, has some kind of addiction to drama. Because <laughs> this exists on the vibration of drama. It'll tell you the same thing over and over. It'll judge and assess and compare and create stories. But it, it can be very dramatic. And so I would say there wasn't a getting bored that happened um, in meditation. But there was a gradual getting bored of this <laughs> and realizing that I had been addicted to drama and that mm. that vibration no longer interested me. And mm. it's, it's shocking. I mean, you know, my husband and I will watch, enjoy Netflix from time to time. It's shocking how much drama is a selling point <laughs> yeah. for our culture. <laughs> it's everything. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'll tell you, you know, talking about boredom, and I, uh, one major reference in that uh, is around a practice that, uh, we do quite a bit and brought back from part of our legacy mm. chant. Mm. So many people, because it's music and because there's rhythm and everything, there's a real tendency to want to quote unquote bliss out, mm -hmm. not be so present, mm -hmm. but, yeah. or, or entertain yourself even. Wow. That's a great chord change. Oh boy. Get that other drummer in there and let him, you know create some polyrhythms that'll be cool so i tell people if you actually in kirtan chanting if you haven't gotten bored you haven't started okay. <laughs> that's great that's great yeah, yeah. because yeah. that uh, the tendency to entertain oneself and, and well it's the same as the drama it's just the same as addiction to drama it it's is. addiction to getting off you know yes yes and and similar to what you shared um something that i often point out to people is that real practice real spiritual practice doesn't begin until self-improvement ends and <laughs> this is related right, to right yeah exactly drama of yeah. Who am I becoming and can I continually fix and improve myself and try to get there and um, yeah. believe the stories of not good enough and better than it, you know, getting over the self. That's just mm -hmm. a, a great uh, affect of an yeah. embodied practice. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. where I wanted to go to actually. Uh, it's a good segue, Eden. Uh, but here's Chief Seattle. Before speaking... Yeah. Consider whether it is an improvement upon the silence. That's so great. But that's part of this uh, in the book, making the shift from I to we. And um, I'm in the midst of working with somebody else on a book that is that exactly. Mm -hmm. 
um, and just sharing our, he and I are sharing the places in, in which uh, the development of that little me guy or girl mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the habitual patterns, the cultural impacts, the neurotic tendencies and how they form this incredible story, which we believe so strongly yes. that it is, it, it, it sets up for a, a, a difficult, well, it's a lifetime of, un, of releasing of that belief system and so yeah talk about it because uh you talk about entering the monastery for you is a, a relief to let go of the unspoken expectations and busyness of socializing and everything yeah. for other people it would be like some horror you know i know horrors. Uh, i know but talk yeah. about how you uh you ran into that uh i you know i consciousness much more profoundly absolutely that is a purpose of meditative practice which is getting to know thyself it is and um i'll just note um, bookmark that i'll be excited to see your book that you're writing because (laughs) the whole topic of uh, we consciousness and how to cultivate it and relational intelligence and collaboration in our world today that is vital medicine for everyone so i'll be excited about that um yeah so you know, there are people who are terrified even of signing up for silent retreat because just the idea of five days or seven days in silence feels terrifying. Um, I began doing retreats at a young age, and I'm simply someone who um, have a balanced introvert and extrovert, so I've always enjoyed quiet. But really, it was a relief moving into a place where Um, the silence of the monastery where I could really focus entirely on practice in a more subtle way. And I was aware that as a sensitive being, I'd so often had um, my life experience impeded upon or imposed upon by others, like everyone's opinions, everyone's reactions, everyone's disruption of my own internal processing. And it was just really nice. And I consider it one of the gifts of practice for anyone who has a practice to really get to have in your life the space that you need to simply be with and be intimate with your experience of being human. That said, um, after settling into the silence of monastic training, then of course it becomes this um, incredibly profound mirror, right? Where one gets to see, uh, because if the backdrop of the silence the voice of the conditioned mind becomes that much louder. (laughs) So one gets to see how crazy and incessant and insane Mm -hmm. this mind is. And oh my gosh, how much judgment I've been living in and all of the projections, right? I remember a day of seeing someone just silently walking down the path and I watched my mind project that just the expression on their face mean they didn't like me. (laughs) You know, when like how much we take personally, things that have nothing to do with us. Um, And so it was incredibly helpful to begin to have a mirror and also incredibly scary because, again, the conditioned mind can get really, really loud in that context. You have to face all your quote unquote demons, right? I sometimes share just as a simple example of when I really got that each and every one of us has a choice about whether to engage with the conditioned mind or not. 
it was the end of just a long day of sitting meditation and working meditation in the winter time. I was new to the monastery. Um, a lot of uh, hard work outdoors. And I got back to my little teeny hermitage in the woods, far away from everyone else. And I remember sitting wrapped in my blankets and saying to myself, oh my gosh, what have I signed on for? This is miserable. I'm cold. I'm freezing. I worked really hard today. This is too much. You know, this is miserable. And just pausing, turning towards my experience rather than away, pausing long enough, feeling my breath, and just seeing clearly in that moment that the misery my mind was going into had absolutely not a thing to do with my actual experience. That in that moment, just dropping into presence, my body was in perfect peace. I was totally warm enough. I loved the, there was a delight in the winter time, the crisp air, and just seeing how insane and how separate from our deeper experience <laughs> this conditioning can be. And seeing the choice that we have, that was really a, a light went off for me. And back to what you named at the very start of this interview about like the invitation through practice to reclaim the authority of the heart, you know, that's what each of us can do through our spiritual practice, really, really losing interest in projecting authority onto this mind of separation. <laughs> And really reclaiming the authority of what is my actual experience in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I just got to tell everybody, as you, as you can imagine, I think I said that, but in the beginning, I have never, we have never met even in mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And uh, as, so I'm discovering you as we talk. And I have to say to everybody out there, uh, obviously, there is lifetimes of practice hmm. on the hmm. path for hmm. you. I mean, I know that. And what has developed, one of the things I can see that allowed you and just describe that moment where you face that discomfort and what the hell am I doing here? I'm freezing. Mm -hmm. You're able to turn, to pivot. And that's only in my mind because of a couple of things. One major thing is courage. Mm, mm, okay mm. and another thing is deep abiding faith in the reality that i am not this stuff that is whirling yeah i am behind all of that and identify you the identification with that you came in with to some degree i would have to believe and of course getting a father like the one you had even with the tragedy yeah uh, yeah so people out there, this is uh, exceptional, uh, but keep striving because you only need another billion <laughs> lifetimes. You'll get there. We'll can get I, there. <laughs> can I offer something about that? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I would say a couple of things. One, I'm, I'm really um, passionate right now about helping people to reframe when they look around and see what an age of disruption we're in and how much pain there is, how much healing is needed, that because of how much is in disruption right now, it's actually a phenomenal 
opportunity and invitation and affirmation for everyone who is uh, in their readiness to wake up, everyone who is really wanting to take the next step in consciousness. So to let the darkness, perceived darkness or difficulties of this time really inspire you on your path. Um, I've never experienced more ripeness in the field of people I guide and teach and meet than ever before. And I think it's really seeing how much of the old systems and the old paradigm, which goes back to what we've been talking about, the myth of separation, mm. is no longer working at all. It's like, okay, well then let's get on with the business of uh, cultivating we consciousness, cultivating a much deeper commitment to this courage and faith. And I would add love um, that we can be living from. So I wanted to say that. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to say that, you know, um, I have had a lot of, uh, some of my greatest teachings in this life have been from really difficult experiences. And so I want to just offer the encouragement to people. They are not impediments to your practice. They are not impediments. Trauma is not an impediment. Uh, it is an invitation for you to reach in here and access the resources that have been waiting for you that are innate. You know, the reason I left the monastery was that I got bit by a tick. And so I had Lyme um, oh, to work yeah. with for many years. And I can say confidently, Lyme was my greatest teacher. Really? Uh, it was my greatest teacher. And it's just that when we make a conscious choice to meet whatever life brings us with love, uh, and love is not some Pollyanna pink, uh, soft Hallmark card. <laughs> love is gentle sometimes and fierce sometimes. Uh, it is like an embrace sometimes. And it's um, just the willingness to keep showing up sometimes. We really can uh, wake up much faster than we think. <laughs> mm. So yeah, it's really yeah. a simple, simple yeah. choice. Yeah. I like to speak of love as the absence of conditionality. I love that. You know. Yeah. 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 Um, so you said I was unaware of the many ways I use the relational field. This is when um, part of a Zen practice mm -hmm. uh, unconsciously. See, this is the thing about everybody about meditation. It really is true that there is a discovery mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. when you sit and allow things to be. There yeah. is a discovery, and it's an, it's extraordinary. Um, so um, it's not about getting anywhere. It's not about becoming a great meditator. I mean, there yeah. are people who get into great uh, focus co using concentration to get one pointed, and that one pointedness leads to, you know, pretty nice experiences. But they're not necessarily getting at you know that's why i love the insight meditation practice which mm -hmm. you know, our friends jack cornfield and sharon salzberg and joseph goldstein brought back uh, because it allows for the realization of self-knowledge which is gives you a huge leg up on not believing in your thoughts just start there never mind anything yeah. else um so i was unaware of the many ways i use the relational field unconsciously to get needs met outside of myself instead of from within to distract myself and to perpetuate the limiting beliefs and delusions of my ego 
Mm-hmm. It was as if the contract I had signed with myself, one of conditional love, extended into all my relationships and social contracts. And this is a day-to-day event for everyone on the planet mm-hmm. and, uh, unless and until they get to a point where they shed that. And, you know, the, the great teachers are that. And, uh, and many of us act in that way some of the time, maybe a little bit more of the time. And uh, to me, it all has to do with moving out of that self. Uh, The Buddhists have a great thing on it, the Tibetans particularly, Mm -hmm. self-cherishing. That that is, uh, it it is very tough when we have that constant uh, uh, relationship with, uh, my friend Krishnadas calls it the movie of me, which is why it led me to- I love it and led me to work on this book uh, mm. we wake up in the morning and we are the we're the writer the director the producer the actors <laughs> we're everything and it's 24 yeah. 7 and and once you start just realize that with that perspective you can see that there is real work to be done because ultimately it is completely unsatisfying and as you said here uh, it just the the idea that we just follow that conditionality in ourselves and with everyone else. And that is a very difficult road to hoe because it's unhappy. And the, and the way to, you know, and this is what you're stepping back into acting on behalf of we. Mm-hmm. And let's just talk about that for, for a second in terms sure. of how we embody that and what that really means. Yes. Yeah. And let's, let's acknowledge, you know, as I'm listening to you, important to acknowledge that we live in this age where there's an epidemic of loneliness, um, an Mm, epidemic of suicide, um, depression. There's so much disconnect. There's a a tear in the fabric of human relationship around the globe right now. So this stuff we're talking about is really important. And so first to go to uh, some of the ways that the ego or small self really limits us in the relational field and tries to maintain this eye consciousness the first principle of relational mindfulness it's a set of practices and principles is intention and it simply invites people to be conscious of the intention that you're bringing to how you engage with another really setting the intention to be present and to pay attention and what we get to first pay attention to is what are all of the attachments and agendas that my ego or separate self brings to human engagement that are really not ultimately what I want. So for instance, I could be here doing this interview with you, but um, my ego perhaps could be wanting to look good or wanting you to really like me, wanting your approval or wanting to be right and (laughs) talk in some wise way where I'm right and you're wrong or Mm -hmm. wanting uh, attention in a certain way. It's that kind of thing. It's so simple. And I'm sure people listening can relate in your own life to times when you're either at work or with a loved one or just a social gathering, but where that's going on. And that completely blocks our capacity to actually be fully present with one another. And being present, it's powerful in itself, but shared presence is wildly powerful. Shared presence is even bigger 
dropping into spaciousness with another human being you know intimacy arises from spaciousness we consciousness is already there waiting for us when we drop into spaciousness because interconnection is who we really are it is not there's nothing we need to do to make it happen but we do need to drop into it and i would suggest a lot of us have been taught that we are separate it's not like someone verbalized to that that to us but it's a subconscious message of this culture we are separate so i need to compete with you i'm separate from you i need to perform around you and i also need to try really hard to connect or like there's a right or wrong way to connect um and it's just not so it's just not so so really letting that conditioning go noticing when the separate self arises that's why i love relational practice so much because so much arises just in any conversation we can have triggers arise that i mean i'm smiling because triggers are an invitation for self-awareness and healing okay rather than an un oh no we can have moments arise where we see our own ego in action and can then become more skillful in working with that part of our ego so it's it's really about empowering ourselves in a life of practice yeah 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 um just one it just leads me to one great example of this and and you've talked about it and talked about it in terms of attention the attention we give uh to each other just yeah. how many times you know i mean we we're just with another person they are trying to express themselves to us but we because of conditions of that moment that day that week whatever cannot allow ourselves to stop thinking about ourselves whatever problem there might have been whatever mm -hmm. emotion there might have been we can't give the attention to that person just yes all do this all the time and it's so it's easy to recognize so just out there yeah like recognize that moment that either you do it or someone else is doing it to you and how that just goes like complete separation occurs in that moment and just look at if you're able to just let go of the moment of self-absorption through whatever conditions that have caused this in you if that was a if you were able to let go of it just think what would happen suddenly you're able to completely embrace that person through your eyes through your vibration through whatever and then yeah. suddenly everything changes and there isn't a me and a you there's just a we uh, that to me is a good uh, exercise you've got it and i hear you pointing to the practice of deep listening which mm -hmm. is another principle of relational mindfulness you know when we're in that place you're describing of being distracted being fixated on the self while we're listening to someone else or appear to be um, it's a place of suffering it's a place of suffering we're not yeah. dropped in whenever we're in deep listening dropped into presence listening with full presence um there is a there is a peace and an aliveness that we're not going to experience uh, when we're in shallow listening and i like to remind people that uh, attention is uh, the most subtle form of love so if mm -hmm. i'm with you really dropped into listening we experience a field of of love yeah, of kindness yeah. and likewise when we're in sitting meditation we're, we're learning how to 
deeply listen within ourselves, giving ourselves the gift of attention. Yeah. yeah. In a steadfast way, not just I'll give myself attention when I'm approved of myself yeah. or when I'm feeling good. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. that. Now we're at the end of our, our chat here, Eden. Uh, but I got to tell everybody, I mean, we could go on for some time. We'll probably, I'll, yes. I'll probably uh, beseech you at one day to, continue this conversation but just for everybody who uh this is a great book with uh many many different uh points of intersection for all of us and uh and you get into something that most people who teach and write these kinds of book they don't really go there especially somebody who was uh, a zen monk and this is uh, mindful sexuality, and you are you really tell your story in a very honest way, healing the divide between sex and spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it's we well we can do a whole podcast just on that. Right? We could. It's yeah. huge. Um, mm -hmm. And also something that's uh, a, a favorite subject of mine, and I think probably one of the most important elements that we all need to work on, and that's resiliency. Because it is so difficult in these times to be resilient with uh, the reactivity and the polarization that's going on. So, uh, and you know, and you bring that all in around mindfulness, compassion, and activism, uh, yeah. which is so very important. But uh, I just want to, can I, uh, there's one, it's a very small quote from, I guess, you and I both love Rilke, right? Uh, because uh, he's in this. Love consists of this, two solitudes that meet, protect, and greet each other. Mm. God, he has a way of putting, you know, words together that really does. spell it yeah. out. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Eden, thanks so much for being here. It was so great to get to know you a little bit and uh, share this, uh, what you've done, this work that you, you've done and that you are doing. And um, I, uh, we're going to figure out some way to continue this conversation as well as, gee, maybe we should do, we do these uh, immersion retreats out here. We do big retreats with uh, when Ramdas was still with us, with Krishna mm -hmm. Das and Jack Cornfield mm -hmm. and other people mm -hmm. in Maui. Uh, because he was there, but we're continuing them because people just want to share that sangha. Uh, but we do these more immersive retreats where we get way more into practice and uh, and bringing people into the teaching themselves to be part of it rather than just passive. And we're going to start doing them around the country. And I suppose I got we should do one in uh, around Asheville, right? Because uh, we love it. Yes. You know, and have to, you know, I'm, I'm going to call on you. Uh, yes, yes. Okay. And I come back to Ojai, my old home, and teach there and teach on the West Coast quite often. So I want to say how much I deeply enjoyed talking with you today. Just your quality of presence. Thank you. Thank really you. enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you, and Ram Das, um, you know, Endless Gratitude, Be Here Now was. Um, one of the first books that really changed my life in terms of opening up a possibility that resonated as true, mm. <laughs> even though I didn't mm. see too many people modeling it in the world back then. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Thank me you. too. Yeah. <laughs> it led yeah. me to India and had my whole life completely turned around. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Well, and thank you again, and everybody, this is Mind Rolly, and of course, you'll uh, be able to go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, and you'll see the show notes and all of the uh, connectivity with uh, Eden's work. Oh, if anybody's asking, because I said this is Deborah Eden Tull. This is the book, by the way, everybody, and, but... She goes by Eden, and we didn't know that till we get. So that's why I'm calling you, <laughs> so everybody knows. But again, thank you, and everything will be there for people to connect with you. And uh, this is mind rolling on Be Here Now Network, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye.